This is Scott Redd, and I'm here with Dr. Peter Lee, our professor of Old Testament and dean of students here at RTS Washington. And we're going to talk a little bit today about one of our favorite topics, which is the Abrahamic Covenant. Of course, the Abrahamic Covenant uh, is one of the you know, important covenants of the Old Testament. Some might even say sort of a central co- uh, covenant of the Old Testament in that it really does establish the redemptive work of God following the fall and uh, takes up a whole large chunk of the middle. And then if you look at the descendants of Abraham, you know, really the rest of the book of Genesis, it's kind of the answer in many ways to the problem that we see rise up in the fall and then in the flood. The answer to that, how is it that God will reestablish his plans with humanity? Well, it's going to be through this family uh, under this one progenitor that is Abram slash Abraham. So it's an important one, it's an important covenant. It really sets the agenda for a lot of the covenantal discussion that's going to happen throughout the rest of the biblical scriptures. And so as a result, it's also much discussed and debated. And so I want to sit here and talk to Dr. Lee. He's working on a manuscript right now on the covenant with Abraham and indeed the whole Abrahamic uh, narrative. Uh, I've written myself a bit on this topic in, in the uh, covenant theology volume that RTS put out. I wrote the chapter on the Abrahamic covenant. So we've both got a lot of thoughts and interest in this topic. So let me start off from there. Dr. Lee, um, what drew you to the Abrahamic covenant and why is it so important for Christians today? Uh, yeah, thank you, uh, Dr. Red. The um, Abrahamic covenant, it's almost as much fun talking about that as it is uh, Deuteronomy. <laughs> well, hey now, hey now, let's not get out of hand. Uh, okay, okay. It, it's almost, almost, I said, almost. Uh, uh, yeah, the, you know, uh, uh, I've been teaching here, you know, for quite a while now at the seminary, teaching Old Testament classes, and um, and the Abrahamic covenant uh, was just one of the many covenants that, you know, that we, uh, that we talk about in the Old Testament. But the more I began to think about it and, and lecture on it and really ponder it, uh, the more I began to see a, a central place in the Abraham of the Abrahamic covenant, um, not just in the uh, Old Testament, but the, um, the the really the history of salvation, and and in many ways I began to see uh, connections between Abraham and the promises that God made to Abraham, with even pre-fall uh, expectations that God had in the garden, and saw the Abrahamic covenant pretty much as really the Lord wanting to do what he did pre-fall, but in the context of the fall, now having to account for sin and atonement and thus Messiah. Um, and and the more I began to think on that and and, and reflect on it, uh, it, it just became a growing interest. And, and I thought, you know, I'm taking up so much lecture time in classes talking about this, I thought, um, and thus, you know, you can't get to a lot of the other subjects that, that you really need to cover in these classes. I thought it might be nice to write on it. Mm-hmm. Um, that way the students can read it and we can just kind of talk about it and then um, move on and save some class time to talk about other things that you have to do as well in these classes. So that was my uh, stimulus to the Abrahamic Covenant. And it's been, it's been great. I, and, and the more I write and think about it, the more I re- I'm really persuaded that this is a very central covenant uh, in uh, God's plan of salvation, and, and not just the salvation, but really in terms of the kingdom. Yeah. So 
Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I think as, as Bible readers, we can sometimes brush over the language, you know, that it's through the Abrahamic covenant that the Lord is going to bless people. He's going to bless Abram's descendants. He's going to bless. Interestingly, in you know, Genesis 12, it says he's going to bless all of the families of the earth through his covenant. And we come to, I think we sometimes think of, well, blessings, like that's good stuff, right? And curses is bad stuff, <laughs> you know, but you can miss actually the significance of this word that following the fall, the question is, how can there be any blessing? What is a blessing? Blessing is word unto life. What is the curse? The curse is a word unto death. And if you've fallen, if you've eaten of the fruit that in that day you will surely die, how can there be any blessing on earth? So I think we kind of miss the fact that when God takes this, this man out of uh, Mesopotamia and his whole family, um, including his wife, who plays a major role in this whole story, uh, and says, I will bless you, we're, we're actually seeing maybe for the first time, we could talk about how Noah plays into this, but in a different way, we're seeing how God actually does have a plan, a plan of redemption, a plan of hope. It's as if there's a dark night and suddenly, right as the sunrise comes, you know, that first glimmer of light coming over the horizon, that's the Abrahamic covenant in the Bible. It's all been dark. People have been doing evil all the time. And then suddenly there's this laser beam of hope yeah, uh, in this covenant. You can actually see how Genesis almost is sort of doing a fast, quick, uh, set up for Abraham if, in yeah. a manner of way. I mean, if you yeah. think about everything before Genesis, so, you know, Abraham's introduced in, well, pretty much in Genesis 12. So Genesis of 1 through 11 is, you know, you've got the flood, oh, I'm sorry, you have creation account in Genesis 1 through 3. Mm-hmm. You've got the Cain and Abel story in 4, uh, the big genealogy in 5, and then the flood narrative in 6 to 9, mm-hmm. the table of nations in 10, another genealogy in 11, but those are really uh, not kind of from generation to generation to generation. I mean, you're you're talking about a a huge span of human history there. Arguably, the bulk of human history takes place in 1 through 11, depending on how we read uh, the flood account, those genealogies and things like that. But from from Abraham on, you're reading it from one generation to the next. So it, it really looks like Genesis 1 through 11 is trying to hit the big, you know, uh, uh, divine events, creation, narr- the flood, and it's trying to get you to Abraham as fast as you possibly can because the real right. development of redemption is with Abraham uh, onward. And then, you know, the, the, the covenant of Abraham is reiterated again with Isaac than with Jacob. So the, I guess for that reason, the Abrahamic covenant might be better called the patriarchal covenant. Yeah, that's good. You know, I think yeah. uh, uh, Gary Knoppers, um, a few others actually the refer late, to the it. Late the, the, the late Gary Knoppers, yes. Right. And, and others have actually referred to that as the, a patriarchal the, covenant. That's a, I notice in class, sometimes that's something you really have to clarify. People say, well, you're talking a lot about Abraham, but what about Isaac and Jacob? And actually, if you read Genesis, the account of Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, you realize that's one of the concerns of the author to say, 
hey, this is the same covenant. What God did for Abram is now being done for Isaac, is now being done for Jacob. That's why you have even these type stories like, uh, you know, the, the 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 story of the of the matriarch in jeopardy, right? Where you go into a foreign land and the king wants to take uh, the matriarch, right? And that happens with multiple patriarchs that that happens. And what, what's the point of that? One of Robert Alter's arguments is that this is a type story. And what is it showing? It's, it's showing that there are the continuing blessings from one to the next. These are fundamentally the same people covenantally, right. as opposed to Moses and then David, because those are going to be new covenants. Those are going to be advancing this work that we find in the Abrahamic right. covenant. So what, okay, now with all that said, what is the Abrahamic covenant? What are the terms of the Abrahamic covenant? Yeah, well, it, that you know, that's interesting because what I'm kind of finding as I read it, uh, different people writing on the Abrahamic covenant is that they're not quite saying the same thing, but they don't realize they're not saying the same thing. No. <laughs> In other words, when we talk about the promise of the Abrahamic covenant, um, first of all, it doesn't seem that they're all, always talking about a single promise. They're talking about promises, plural. But then when you uh, uh, read what uh, different scholars articulate as the promises that God made to Abraham, that's where they don't agree, but they don't seem to realize they don't agree. And and you get the sense that people are a little cavalier, well, not cavalier, but just um, the imprecision doesn't seem to be significant enough for them to actually think through this. So one person would say, what God promised to Abraham is, you know, is people and land. Mm -hmm. Others might say it is people and blessing. Um, a, another person would say it's actually people, land, and blessing. Mm -hmm. uh, and then different permutations and different lists of, of, of potential uh, blessings, and you see that they're not quite saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. And no one seems to actually stop to kind of ponder and, and realize you know, different uh, people are saying different things. So it raises a question, then what exactly is the promise that, mm -hmm. that God made to Abraham? And that's part of what I try to do is to answer that question and 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 uh, and uh, narrow that down a little bit. So what I have said is um, that uh, the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant actually is in Genesis 12, where God says, I will make you into a great nation. Mm -hmm. The word covenant doesn't occur there. The actual word covenant doesn't occur with Abraham until Genesis 15 with the right. sacrificial ratification act. But I, I'm not too bothered by that. I don't think we need to be too wooden and to mm -hmm. say that, uh, you know, the beginning of a covenant has to be has to coincide with the actual occurrence of the word covenant. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about the covenant of works with Adam, as you know, but. The word covenant never occurs in Genesis 1 through 3, mm -hmm. but we very comfortably talk about that as a covenant. So in the same way, I would call, I would say that the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant began in Genesis 12 with this promise to a great nation. In the context of that promise, though, you know, God said, you know, go, uh, leave your uh, family, leave your homeland, leave your father. And I will make you a great nation, which implies then that this great nation promise is going to bless Abraham with a new promised family, mm -hmm. a new homeland, and a new kind of authority figure in terms of a father. It's it's a little different because uh, the word nation in Hebrew, as you know, is usually associates itself with only people. Yeah. So, um, uh, but in the context of Genesis twelve, like, it doesn't seem to be just people. It seems to be a broader concept uh, in terms of the people 
where they live in terms of a homeland and some type of a leadership structure with a father figure. Mm-hmm. So what I've suggested that is that the the nation of Genesis 12 is the single promise that God made to Abraham. It's only one promise. But the component parts that make up that nation is a promised people, promised land, mm-hmm. promised leadership. Um, and that if you trace out the history of salvation from Abraham on, and if you really think about it, I mean, what more is there in the history of salvation other than the blessed people of God through Abraham, the land, a homeland, um, and the leadership structure, which of course for Abraham becomes concretely the promised king, and that kings will come from your line. That's what the Lord says to Abraham in in uh, Genesis 17. And so when we trace those sort of, these biblical theological themes of the promised people, the promised land, the promised king, mm-hmm. that what we're actually seeing is God fulfilling his promise uh, in to Abraham, and Abraham becomes a unifying factor. Yeah. And, and so these are not just random atomized themes, but they are actually fulfillments of the promise that God made to Abraham. So that's that's what I, I see. Yeah, I love that. And, and you know, you have this kingship. I mean, this is, this is kind of a side note, but I teach uh, Joshua to Esther at times. And one of the issues that always comes up, students always are under the impression that, well, no, the king, when the, when Israel asks for a king and Samuel, they're sinning, right? Right. And of course, the answer to that is no, they're, they're asking for a king like the kings of the other nations. God always planned for a king. You know, Christ, Christ's role, his office as king is not a, a secondary role or something. And you see that all the way back in Adam and Eve, they're called to rule over the earth, right? To have dominion, that's kingly language. And then as we see in Abraham, in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, it says kings will come out of you. Kings and princes will come out of you, right? You know, showing again, and Moses of course talks about the king, what the faithful king should do too, that this, I like that, that you're drawing that line in there because that theme of kingship is present in Abraham too. I, the way I describe it is I say Genesis 12 is the covenant promise. Um, and then kind of continuing with the theme that you find with almost all of the covenants, they're all developed over time. So you have a ratification in Genesis 15 that you mentioned where it says covenant, and that's where you have the bloodletting, and that's where you have the walking through the animal parts. We can talk about that in a minute. And, and the terms of the covenant being laid out. But then in Genesis 17, you then have circumcision. And some some people take that as a separate covenant. I would take that you know, as a covenant amendment that's just amending the covenant to account for the fact that Abraham uh, needs to be in the covenant. This is not a universal covenant. In other words, it's not whatever Abraham does now and his descendants, who cares? Because God has made it unilaterally. And so it doesn't matter what they do. It does matter. They have to be in the covenant. You have to raise your hand. Just like in Christ, we have to have faith and repent and profess with our mouth. That's the conditions of the covenant. It's not those aren't works that merit our salvation, but they're conditions of the covenant. Um, so you have that amendment in, in Genesis 17. And you might think, well, then it's over. And I would argue, I think we're on Genesis 22, where you have the sacrifice of Isaac. That's in, in many ways a covenant confirmation. It, yeah. it, it's not it's it's not Abram winning his righteousness. Paul's very clear about that, by the way, that Abram is counted as righteous way back in Genesis 15 when he merely believes, right? But in Genesis 22, you have this kind of confirmation that now uh, he is willing to trust the Lord in all things. That means even giving up, if necessary, his son. Of course, Isaac is more than just a son in this account. He is the seed 
that right. he's been promised. I mean, how do you have a nation if you don't have a son, right? And so I like that kind of four-part development of the covenant over time and helps it all draw together as opposed to sort of atomizing and pulling everything apart, making it unexplicable. You pull the whole thing together and throughout that development, you really do, as you said, you get this reiteration of the land. It's a key part of this, the land and the timing in which they'll get the land, the the seed that is a nation. And within that, this, this kind of kingly fatherly, promise and the subtext of that also that you see in genesis 12 is that this will bless not just israel and his or abraham and his descendants but it's going to bless the whole world so all the families of the earth will be blessed and that gets to that priestly role of israel yeah i think that's the important direction we have to see right at genesis 12 we're not talking about uh, a localized blessing this is a global Mm -hmm. universal vision in abraham right from genesis chapter 12 so when you see paul talking about it in the New Testament, you know, he's applying this not just to Jews, the actual descendants of Abraham. He is, well, I guess for a lack of a better way, he is eschatologizing everything. Yeah, Yeah. You know, the people of God now are not limited just to Jews, but to all those who have faith in the true son of Abraham, that is Jesus Christ. They are, they are now the true descendants of Abraham. They are the true Israel. Um, And so you see how the, seed form of the universal promise. Well, actually, it's not seed. It's explicitly stated there yeah. in Genesis 12. Yeah. All the earth will be blessed by you. You see the extent of that, really, in the New Testament, in in terms of the extent of the people. The land now is not just, you know, a carved-out chunk of uh, um, of Canaan. It is now the, the whole world, the new heavens and new earth. Mm-hmm. The kingship is not limited just to earthly kings. You see that in Christ. Mm -hmm. You see the fullest extent and the fullest extent of the blessing there uh, in the the New Testament. That's such an important distinction, and it's a fine distinction. I think it's one that many students of the Bible um, maybe aren't aware of, but they miss the importance of it, that it's not merely that Israel is a type for all people, right? That's an important thing. That what was true of Israel is now true in Christ for the whole world. That's an important distinction to make, that we are in solidarity with Israel, Israel as human, human representative, even called the son of God uh, in the Mosaic arrangement, um, that Israel is representative of humans in a way, and in a way that culminates in Christ, right? Christ becomes the representative, the, the, the type for all of humanity. But with that said, and that's a beautiful part of the Reformed tradition, there's also an organic, as I think you just, you were kind of saying this now, eschatologizing, there's this organic growth. Abram always was told, God always told Abram that it was not just about him. It's about the whole world. He will, through his seed, bless the whole world. And that that's an organic linear progression, not just a symbolic Right. progression. Right. Uh, so there's a way in which the gospel right takes the symbols and the themes of the Old Testament covenants and uh, reifies them in the world around us you know, globally. But there's also a sense in which the New Testament and the gospel is 
the sequel to the Old Testament. It's the natural progression. It's the next part of the story that the early story, the Old Testament, anticipated and drew our attention to oh, yeah. way back. As you said, it's not just in seed form. It's said explicitly, all the earth will be blessed through you. Yeah. In um, in many ways, it's sort of the the, the final stage of the of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, I, I guess it's there's it's something interesting how you know that final stage fulfillment or realization is um, is of a magnitude and a state of fulfillment that is so unparalleled yeah. to what came before that it's as if everything typological now is really nothing compared to the fullness and the reality. So you know what Paul says in. Uh, Galatians 3, you know, the promise I made was to Abraham and his seed, singular, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of odd because, you know, Isaac was a seed of Abraham. Jacob was a seed of Abraham. Israel was a seed of Abraham. These these were all, you know, in one way, the Old Testament is a history of the seed of Abraham. Um, so how can, and, the, and they clearly received the promise. They rented the land. They received the mm-hmm. covenant. They had their kingship. So I don't know how Paul could say the promise is made with your seed singular when the previous seeds of Abraham were clearly there and received some form of the promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, you know, here's an example where the the reality of the type is of such a different level of fulfillment, so grander and so greater that in comparison, the type is nothing. Yeah. It's as if Abraham had only one seed, mm. and that is Christ, because of the the nature of the fulfillment of that promise in Christ. But we can't stop there, because Paul then goes on to say, you know, by faith we also, the church, believers, yeah. are also descendants. We're reading through Ab- Abraham. We're reading through Romans right now, this dear listener. Right. right. This comes yeah. up in Romans <laughs> from tracking, what we talked about we're before. We're through Romans, right. So that really is kind of a, a great thing. Yeah. Okay. It's 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 beautiful to me because you get all of those early trajectories that you're going to see really pan out in such a grand, extravagant level over the course of redemptive history. Um, that both, you know, Abram is saved by faith, right? What's his faith in? He, he doesn't know the name of Jesus. He has, he's never seen a, a Roman cross, right? Rome would be just some of the Japhethites to him, right? You know, there's descendants perhaps. Um, but what does he have faith in? He has faith in God to fulfill his promises, that God will provide a lamb, right? God will provide a seed. He will bless the earth through my family. And that that is his salvific faith, and right. that that comment in, in Genesis 15 lays the groundwork then for the covenant. So let's 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 walk through Genesis 15 a bit and just kind of draw out because when I'm teaching covenant theology, I use this as kind of one of the one of the first places yeah. where we really see clear covenant the you know covenant elements emerging in a biblical text. And back in the 20th century, after the, the the Hittite and later the Assyrian covenants are discovered, people are saying, oh, look, we see these same structures in scripture. And we see them clearly in Genesis 15. And it comes right after that passage where the Lord says, or it says, the narrator says, uh, you know, Abram believed in the Lord and right. it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then immediately we plunge into this very interesting, and if you don't know ancient Near Eastern world, it feels kind of like a non secateur, right? It kind of all of a sudden, Abram says, "How will I believe?" And the Lord says, 
I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur. You're like, well, of course we all know that. Why, why are you talking about that now? But it's because he's beginning this covenant process. Right. All right. So let's let's walk through that a little bit. Well, the uh, uh, that that uh, ritual act in Genesis 15 is is uh, it's just so remarkable. It's uh, um, and uh, and so. Um, so significant, uh, you know. As you know, Scott, uh, this this is fairly typical um, uh, mode of operating procedure as covenant making goes in the ancient world. Covenant making uh, began first with kind of covenant parties, and these are actual, you know, contractual documents. You know, they were actual manuscripts oh. uh, that were drawn out. Yeah, and, and discovered in the early twentieth century, mid twentieth century. Um, where it became clear that this was a way in which treaties were made between kings and their vassal states. Right. Right. So this isn't this isn't unique to the scriptures that they are using this sort of genre. This is the way that all agreements were kind of made um, in uh, in the in the ancient world. So the Lord is essentially drawing up a contract, a covenant with Abraham. Uh, he identifies himself as a great covenant Lord. Uh, he uh, has a brief history of the accomplishments and the and the works that he has done as a great covenant lord. Genesis 17 lays out the stipulations. That's sort of the third section in these covenants uh, with Abraham. It's his call to be blameless and um, uh, and perfect. The uh, next section are the blessings and the curses that you have in the covenants. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, you will have a uh, a documentary curse something that says that you can't add or change anything in it. And then you have a sixth section on covenant witnesses. Man, I went through that real fast, but uh, yeah. uh, but this is a pretty well-documented type of thing. Now, now, we don't have all of these elements in Abraham, but we have enough to actually uh, consider it a, an well, actual covenant. And, for, and, and, and as, these things were di- as these were discovered, it didn't take long before people noted, hey, this sounds a lot like the book of Deuteronomy. For instance, right, right. and the covenant with um, David, Second Samuel seven. Uh, you know, there there are elements that show up here. This kind of progression of historical prologue, right, where you go through everything the good king, the, the great king has done that's good in the past. Then you know stipulations for how to stay in the covenant, blessings and curses for the covenant, witnesses, as you say, ratification ceremony. And it's interesting as we're reading through Genesis fifteen. If we understand that background, we see that that the Lord is 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 employing uh, something like this that we see in sort of broader culture um, in the ancient Near East. And, and, and notice what he says. I mean, as, as we were um, as we were just discussing, this is Genesis fifteen verse seven, and he said, "I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess." Okay, so what is the Lord doing there? He's he's recounting his relationship, special relationship with Abram. Why, why bring that up? Abram's not saying why did you know uh, you know where, where did you bring me from? That's not the question. The question is how will I know that you will be um, true to your blessings? He asked that question again. Abram asked in verse eight, right afterwards. Oh Lord, how shall I know that I'll possess this land? And notice what the Lord says again. He doesn't say, well, here, let me tell you how you're going to know. I'm going to enter into a binding arrangement with you. Okay, There's an assumption here. There's a presupposition of shared knowledge. So what does the Lord say right away? 
bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Okay, so there's this realization now that we're entering into. We have to assume that this would be something that Abram understands, that he's entering into this binding relationship. You might even say, it's kind of hard to explain. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Why it is that after he rightly cuts the animal pieces up, why it says that he a deep sleep fell on him. You know, this is the same language that's used for Adam uh, in the account where apparently a rib is taken out of him. It's hard to, that, that's an interesting account back in the, back in the garden too. Um, you know, I, I wonder a bit if this is really accounting for the fact that Abram realizes he's about to do this thing and is overcome by it, literally faints, you know, passes out under the solemnity and the gravitas of the event. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's clearly something going on here. Kind of, you know, there, there, there's this, this is a heavy event. One of the ways we know that is that Abram is driving away the scavenger birds, right? Which he's recognizing this isn't just a barbecue, right? This isn't just uh, some kind of ritualistic thing that has no significance, but this is, we're now in the area of the sacred. And even though the holiness code hasn't been given yet to Moses, I do think uh, the author here is signaling to the audience, our father did it the right way. Right. He did it right. right. Yeah, why, why else give all these details? Because he did it the right way even though we don't have the holiness code yet, but um, remember this is being written for uh, an Exodus exil- uh, and conquest audience. Yep. So you, you have that kind of beginning that to me signals that Abram knows something grand and heavy is going on, right? right. This isn't just, this isn't just, he's not just going, well, I guess I'll do this weird thing, but that he realizes that he's entering into a covenant with a deity. And that's not something that's common in the ancient Near East, humans entering into these kind of binding covenants with deities. Right. And I think that's important to see, you know, um, we use the word covenant um, and and that's fine, uh, but they really are kind of legal contracts in a manner of speaking. And this happens to be where um, the biblical covenants is where the Lord is one of the contractual parties. Now that that doesn't sound very romantic, mm-hmm. um, uh, but there is a legal binding nature to these covenants that um, that is very significant. So, uh, and and I think what you did is great. From verse fifteen, verse seven on, it really is sort of presuming and setting up the covenantal nature yeah. of what's about to happen. And and as you said, this isn't idiosyncratic to to Abraham. He knows what's happening. Yeah. He doesn't need to be told what's going on here. He knows what is about to happen. He knows um, that you know the contract, the the covenant now is in order. Uh, it is secure. It has been drawn out. There's only one thing that now has to take place, and that is the actual legalizing, the ratifying, the. Yeah to now say that this is now binding and is now in action. Uh, and that's what follows yeah. here in verses uh, you know, 12 and following. So, uh, And it's answering immediately that question um, of how will I know that you're going to bless me? Right. And you might think, well, the Lord's going to give him another vision or something like that, but he doesn't. He binds himself to Abram. That's what the power of the covenant is God binds himself to us and he binds us to him, you know, and it's, and it's something that we can lay hold of 
that God is not a capricious God, but he, he is true to his claims and his promises. Um, it's not enough just to kind of give a sign. He binds him in. Okay. And so what happens next is that he then says, okay, you're going to receive this land. Okay. That I promise you, your seed is going to receive this land. You're going to, but there's this little caveat here that we haven't heard yet, but gets introduced here that they are going to sojourn in another um, another nation for 400 years. And then later, these the, the language of four generations. In other words, for this, this long period of time, your offspring will not be here. In other words, you're not going to see this offspring and you're not going to see this land be taken in your lifetime. Uh, as a matter of fact, Isaac's not going to see it. Jacob's not going to see it. Joseph's not going to see it. It's not going to be for a long time. And why? This is, again, just this whole passage is fascinating. We could spend a whole class in this. Because the sin, the iniquity of the Amorites, which is being used here as kind of a, a, a metonym for all of the peoples in the land, right? Because later we're going to see that, that there's an awareness of all of the different uh, groups in the land. You have the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaim, the Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. So we've got all of them, but the Amorites are kind of a placeholder here, and their sin has not yet reached its full which to me is fascinating because in the middle of this covenant that is really about promising you're going to get the seed, you're going to get the land. He says, but I'm not going to do it in a way that's not just. Right. Right. You know, it's got to be just. And they don't, the people in the land do not deserve your coming in and taking it. Their right. sin has not yet reached its full. And I'm actually going to risk my people for generations in this sojourning in this other land of Egypt. Yeah in order for the the act of me giving the land to you uh being just it needs to be just right i mean right. do you take that any other way yeah, I, I, i've kind of wrestled through this a lot but it seems to be the logic of the conquest that it needs to be just and it's not just yet you know i think uh it, it's exactly right the uh these people groups towards the end here that essentially the canaanites mm -hmm. you know they are um uh unclean they are unholy uh, the the land that the Lord is promising to them is holy land. Mm -hmm. You know, those two cannot mix. You, you can't have unholiness in the presence of holy of the holy God. And he dwells in a holy land. It's an act of justice and they need to be purged. And I mean, that's tough. I get it. Uh, but uh, that is the nature of... Um, of God as a just God, and mm -hmm. so uh, and so, you know, the 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 kind of mild detour through Egypt is just to bring that uh, act of justice. I think is the I don't know how else to read it yeah. other than that. And it's got to be in a way that's appropriate. The the Lord is not willfully taking the land. Or I shouldn't say willfully. He's, he is willfully. He's not flagrantly, as if that could be the case. But he's not flagrantly taking the land from them. He's saying, when you come in the outcry against them will be so great that it'll be a good thing. Right. It, it'll, it'll be a just act, even in the context of common grace for you to go in and take right, the land. Right. You know, in other words, it's, it's God's justice, um, his just character coming out in a way that again, we, we give thanks for that. God is just even in the midst of our fallen state that he's still just even towards the Amorites with whom he has no, uh, with whom he has no covenantal relationship. Okay, so as this is happening, uh, we skipped over the main part, of course. 
one of the ratification ceremony aspects of a ratification ceremony of a covenant is that the two kings would represent their bindedness, right? Their boundness by doing interesting things like chopping up animals and walking through the body parts, right? While, while someone is reciting the covenant and fundamentally you're saying, let it be on me like it is on these animals. Right. But what happens here? Right. It's, it's fantastic. I mean, normally at this point, you know, in many ways that the, uh, the uh, procedures in covenant making, they're just following standard procedure here. It's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, and the standard procedure here would be for both covenant party members to kind of pass between these um, cut up animal. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, uh, the, uh, the extraordinary thing is that Abraham is uh, in this kind of semi uh, sleep state. And so he's not the one that goes through the uh, halves of the animal. It really is this sort of theophanic presence. It describes a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch that passes between these two animal pieces. We've uh, historically, and I think properly, understood that as a uh, theophany, an actual Mm -hmm. physical presence of God, to say that God is passing between these animals. Now, of course, this has enormous covenantal uh, uh, impact because the message that we are saying is that those who pass, the covenant party members who pass between the, co- the sacrifice animals, that if they violate their terms of the covenant, then may what happened to these animals also happen to them, meaning may they suffer covenant curse. Right. Um, now, Abraham would have known this. Everyone who's reading this in its ancient context would have known that this is what's happening, which is what makes it so uh, uh, such a blessed event that only the Lord is the one passing through these animals. Sacrifices, mm-hmm. not Abraham. Right. As you mentioned, you know the context of this is some assurance that the Lord wants to give to Abraham that the promise of the land will in fact be fulfilled to his descendants. So how does the Lord uh, assure Abraham that he is going to do this? He makes his covenant. He goes mm-hmm. through this ritual. He, he alone passes through the sacrificial animals meaning that you can bet on your life that I will fulfill this covenant. Yeah. And that you're, I'm the one making it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not Abraham that is yeah. um, that is uh, being held accountable. The terms of the covenant is completely one-sided. It is yeah. all the Lord. It is his promise. And he is the one who will suffer covenant curse if he violates it. Right. But since he's the Lord and cannot and will not, it's, this is his way of assuring to Abraham what I promised about your descendants, about the land, is an absolute guarantee. Right. And it's beautiful because God calling on himself the curses, of course, means that the covenant will never be broken because God right. will not break the covenant. Those curses, you know, uh, the curses that he's calling upon himself there is it's assuring that this covenant will be forever. Right. And, right. and Abraham into his seed to the blessing of all the families of the earth. Yes. Amen. I mean, so, you know, we read this here in Genesis 15 and, uh, you know, it, it is sort of specific to the land uh, part of the promise. Yeah. But I don't think we need to limit it that way. It's to the kind of Abrahamic covenantal promise as a whole mm-hmm. in the same way that, you know, the uh, the Lord blesses Abraham for his faith in Genesis 15, 6. 
Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Yeah. That was also in the context specifically of a child that he would have. It, so it's limited just to the people promise that Abraham believed in and that that faith and believing in that would be uh, uh, would be credited to him as righteousness. Right. But when we read uh, the way the New Testament takes Genesis 15, 6, it doesn't limit it just to that. It applies it to the Abrahamic covenant as a whole. Yeah. So I think the same way we can take this ritualistic ratification act to the promise that God made Abraham holistically, yeah. not just to the land alone. Amen. And again, with the, with the caveat about the uh, sojourning in another country for these 400 years or four generations, I just point this out. This only makes sense in the context of an exodus and conquest community. I mean, yeah. yet again, as I'm reading Genesis, I'm more and more reminded how this really makes sense following the exodus. It doesn't make sense if it's, say, written many hundreds of years later. This is very much attuned to exodus concerns, less so to maybe what we might call exilic concerns or something, as some theories about Genesis go, that this is really a late book and this is all written right. much later. But let me, let me draw attention back to one thing, because this is so interesting. And again, also highlights again, the Egyptian centrality to all of this. The very next chapter then, okay, so we have this wonderful covenant ratification. The very next chapter is the ch chapter about Hagar and Ishmael, where Isaiah, excuse me, Isaiah, uh, where Jacob tries to bring about the seed in his own way. Right. Right. We could fundamentally say that he and Sarah conspire to do, uh, to bring about uh, uh, the seed through his handmaiden or her handmaiden rather, um, Hagar, the Egyptian. So it's highlighted again too, by the way, that there's this special connection with Egypt here back going all the way back to the patriarchy, to the patriarchal period. So you have this special relationship. You know, John Calvin, interestingly, in his commentary says that this whole Hagar Ishmael story is really highlighting uh, Jacob's slowly developing realization that God is the God of the whole universe and not just a, a deity to be manipulated and controlled like Baal or Marduk in his case, you know, um, but that this is a God who is God of the whole world. And so you're not, you're not trying to just manipulate concerns around you and manipulate the world to get what you want, of course, which is all of our temptation. Calvin even says that when he sends Hagar away, he only gives her enough water for her to get basically right. within a day's journey. In other words, he's not letting her go too far because he might need her again. <laughs> and what does the Lord do? The Lord provides for her to leave. In other words, he breaks Jacob of his, oh. of his, uh, you know, we might use the word addiction, you know, or obsession with Hagar and Ishmael. He breaks it and, and, and protects her, taking her out yeah. from under his control and moving her, bringing her back to her family. And I, you know, Calvin makes that point, which I thought was really fascinating. But anyways, here's how it starts. In Genesis 16, you have this Hagar Ishmael account and then Genesis 17 comes and the Lord arrives on the scene. And, and it seems to me, this is why I call it covenant amendment. You could call it covenant advancement or something like that if you want to. It seems as if the, the what's going on in Genesis 17 is, yes, I unilater unilaterally made this covenant with you. Yes, I passed through the animal parts, but you need to be in the covenant. Right. You, you can't now just go do whatever you right, want. Right. You have to, your belief... Right, his belief has saved him. It's a saving faith, but you have to be in the covenant, right? 
you have to raise your hand and step forward. Right. Okay. Right. I mean, this is this is why we're not universalists because this is true, as I mentioned earlier, in the in the Christian the covenant with new covenant with Christ too. Right. It's not just Jesus died and therefore all people are saved. Right. It's those who are un- united with Him in faith who believe in their hearts, profess with their mouths. Right. Right. Uh, those aren't works that merit you. Okay. The covenant's already been made. Right. Paul's been very big about this, and yet. There is a there is a sacrament that marks your participation in the covenant, and that is the sacrament of circumcision. Right, right, and yeah. shows shows your sign of membership in the in the yeah. Abrahamic covenant. And, and I totally agree. The um, you know there is still appropriate uh, ways of living in the context of the covenant. You can't yeah. just do whatever you want and 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 abuse the the grace that God is showing to you. In mm-hmm. fact. Uh, you know, James, uh, the book of James, I mean, and I forget where, chapter 2, 21 to 23, I think, mm-hmm. interprets, um, you know, Abraham believed it was credited to him as righteousness. Um, and he says that um, that believing, that faith of Abraham, you see manifested in his obedience to uh, the covenant demands. Mm-hmm. So, that, uh, so that by being in the covenant, there are obligations. Abraham is fulfilling them as an act of faith, right. not as a condition to receive the covenant blessings. And right. so, you know, when we talk about, you know, a covenant of grace, and in, in many ways, the Abrahamic covenant is sort of the covenant of grace in many ways, mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't preclude um, covenant duties. Yeah. Uh, and, and you could see how, you know, that sort of lined out, you know, it wasn't appropriate for Abraham to do what he did with Hagar. Yeah. Uh, in fact, Calvin's commentary here: Abraham is real scum. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, he's real scum, and and um, well, he's still thinking. I think, and I think you see it with this with the Pharaoh story and the Abimelech story too. He's still thinking that Adonai doesn't have that much power. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he does. He's like, yeah, okay, you've promised me these things, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I I, I believe that you'll fulfill them. But I think I've got to kind of manipulate the scene to make it really happen. Yeah, you, you know? could. I mean, it really is. The, the Exodus really is sort of the grand example of the redemptive yeah. power of of Yahweh. Yeah. Uh, in Abraham's life, he saw little bits here and there, but you, you get a sense that he's sort of, you know, flushing out or uh, his doctrine of God in a manner of speaking. I mean, who is it, who is this Lord that... And, and, you know, he he wasn't... He never referred to him by his name. Yeah. You know, he always referred to him... As you know, El Shaddai or El something or other, and so and he doesn't finally get it until Genesis twenty-two, right? Where he says the Lord right. will provide a lamb. He now is finally, and man, I relate to him so much on this. It finally got into his thick head. God will provide a lamb, right? God's the one who's faithful to covenant. It's not me working, trying to work him. He's not a vending machine. He's not. He's not like Baal, where if I just offer just enough. Uh, you know, sacrifices and money, then maybe he'll pay me back what I deserve or something like that. He finally realizes God's in, in, in control of this redemptive plan. Amen. Yeah. Well, uh, you see, we talked about early on, how you see all the different themes of the covenants show up right here. And I think, I think all of these are important. The unilateral nature of the redemptive covenants, um, the fact that the faith, you know, that, that provides for us our salvation bears fruit. That's the, that's the way the Old Testament talks about this idea of 
um, living blamelessly, as it says in Genesis 17. That that should be the fruit of faith, you know. Yeah. Uh, the tree planted by a stream of water bears fruit in its season, says Psalm 1. No one thinks that the tree gets its life from its fruit. It gets right. its life from the water, right? And yet it bears good fruit. That's how you know about it. Or the author of Hebrews says, you know, Lord, the Lord, even, even those he saved, especially those who are saved, who are elect, they still get raised up like a, you know, by a loving father and he disciplines and chastises them. And when you're suffering, you should ask yourself, how is the Lord disciplining me? How is he drawing yeah. me closer to him? That's an act of grace. You know, so I, see, I think we see all of these dynamics that begin or that we first see clearly articulated in Abram, Abraham becoming fulfilled over the course of redemptive history. Yeah. In fact, um, I think he even says in Genesis 22, you know, once Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, and and then you have the the angel of the Lord uh, halting him. It says that the Lord will bless you because of what you had done. I think is what it says, which is sort mm -hmm. of remarkable, given the faith based nature of everything that we've been yeah. talking about. But yet, it sounds like he's blessing Abraham because of his deed, his work. Mm -hmm. But uh, as a matter of fact, that obedience really is as we've been just talking about is yeah. just a product of his faith yeah. and in other words it's sort of as it's uh outside of genesis 15 6 abraham believed credited righteousness almost everything else in abraham it sounds like he is obeying or disobeying mm -hmm. so the more obedient you have abraham so by genesis 12 you know he's just doing whatever god told him tells him to do with very little hesitancy, mm -hmm. you know, go up. I'm not going to tell you where he goes. Take Isaac. He takes Isaac. Uh, sacrifice Isaac. He's about to. There's very little hesitancy in in Abraham. But the more obedient uh, you have of Abraham, the more it affirms that he actually is trusting the Lord, believing in the Lord. So the more you uh, portray Abraham as um, as faithful. You are actually portraying him as faith-based, and 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 that's sort of a that's sort of a cool, interesting way of seeing that. Yeah, and it's the, the biblical text. We have to remember this: the biblical text sometimes highlights the kind of elect nature that we should. We might even say the divine perspective towards the human, which in which case Abram is never in doubt. Right? He's God's chosen. He's the elect. He's the one who has faith. He's never in doubt. Sometimes the text is highlighting the phenomena, right? The, 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 the expressions of those divine or transcendent realities. Yeah. I, I think there's no way you maybe see this more clearly on this exact topic than Jeremiah 17, where he also uses the tree planted by a stream of water that you find in Psalm 1. Um, and how the tree bears its fruit, even in the drought. So even when there's a drought, it still bears fruit because it's got a stream that's feeding it, not the rain, you know, which is an interesting idea that everybody bears fruit when it's raining. But when it stops raining, that's when you find yeah. out who the real believers are. <laughs> yeah, interesting and challenging idea. Um, but then he says, why, so why am I telling you this whole thing? Because the heart is deceitful. Okay. So how do you know if you believe? Look at the fruit of your belief. You might look in your heart and be like, I'm not sure, but okay, so look at the fruit. Are you bearing the fruit of belief? And then he says, the Lord searches the heart, right? And he gives according to the fruit of the deeds. And someone might read that and say, well, wait a minute. I thought we weren't blessed by our works. 
Okay. I thought, I thought our salvation was because of our faith. Well, he just told you the tree metaphor, right? Where he tells you where the life comes from. Life comes from faith, right? Uh, regenerate is as other regenerate heart that these fruit, the fruit is born. However, he's highlighting the fact that even with us, even when I'm dealing with another person, one of the ways I can um, evaluate my own life or the life of others is by looking at the fruit of faith. And right. that's a very real, that's, that's a very real and thing a, that we should a, be holding all of our leaders accountable to as well. I agree. And it's a blessed thing. I mean, yeah. to live a life of, of lawlessness and sin is a horrible way to live, yeah. to, to have the blessed outworking of, of, of a true faith that can be manifested in the way that we live our lives mm-hmm. is, is a healthier, uh, more stable way of living life. To, to, I mean, I would hate to, you know, to live a life of, of, of sin is just, it's horrible. Amen. Amen. You don't want that. And so, so, you know, I guess that's what, um, I see in our lives today, no, no, I mean, I mean me personally, but just the church in general as still in many ways receiving the blessings that God gave to Abraham, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, we are saved, uh, through the promise that God made to Abraham, you know, the, even the, we talked about circumcision briefly, but the, um, a lot of the heart metaphor that, that you really develop in your Jeremiah class. Uh, if you think about it, uh, Jeremiah is really developing the circumcised heart yeah, imagery from Moses Deuteronomy 30. Yeah. But Moses is alluding to Genesis 17 and an Abrahamic covenant yeah. of circumcision. So the origins of the renewed heart is from Genesis 17 and an Abrahamic promise right. of, a circum- of circumcision and of what circumcision really represents. So yeah, it was to, never just about the ritual, right? The ritual no. was to be an expression of the heart that believes. Right now, you know, uh, uh, you know, we, you know, circumcision wasn't done on the heart, the actual outward act of it, but yeah. the fact that it's specified as a cutting of the heart by uh, by Moses, mm-hmm. he is really kind of elaborating what circumcision really represents. It's yeah. it is a cutting away of the old self it is a, a renewal of the new man mm-hmm. in that way you know circumcision is just like baptism uh and thus you see that uh continuity there but all of that is abraham in other words you can have as many people as you want but if they're not renewed in their heart if they're not circumcised of the heart if they don't really receive the real um uh, renewal of circumcision what good is having all these people? They they fell into sin before. They went into exile. It's going to happen again. Mm-hmm. You can't just say you're going to have a lot of folk and a lot of people in your line um, unless you can show some renewal within them so that they can actually now believe, so that they can now obey, so mm-hmm. they can now worship. And, and, and Israel will wrestle with this throughout the rest of its life, right? right that you'll right. have apostate Israelites who despise their circumcision and turn away, and um, you'll have those who embrace expression yep, in faith. It's planted in, by the stream of water, as the psalmist yeah. would say. Um, and that, that dynamic continues today, and we have to be aware of that even in the church. You know, that there yeah. are those in the church who will despise their circumcised heart, they will dis- or they'll despise their their baptism, for instance. And uh, you know, the author of Hebrews deals with that as well, that we shouldn't be surprised when that happened. And that's not because that's a new arrangement, but that this has been the case for God's covenant people going all the way back to the beginning. 
Yeah, amen. Yeah. So, you know, we, heaven is sort of in new heavens and new earth, the land promise. Uh, the circumcised heart is in Abrahamic fulfillment. The, the, uh, the, the royal priesthood nature of the church, uh, it, although mosaic in its terminology, the origins of that goes back to Abraham. It, 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 we are, we, the fullness of the, of the reception of the blessings that we receive, uh, as the church, you could see, you know, it, it's, it's developed from David, the covenant of David, the covenant of Moses. But all of that finds its source back to Abraham. Amen. Amen. And that's why you should read the Abrahamic covenant. Amen. <laughs> that's why it's so important. Well, Genesis twenty, uh, Genesis 12 to 22, 10 chapters that will change your life. Oh, that sounds like a book title. Um, take a look at it. Don't miss Abraham. It's not just an old story, uh, but it really does set the agenda for God's redemptive plan that finds its culmination and total fulfillment in the new covenant with Jesus Christ. Thanks, Peter, for talking with me about this today. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, I enjoy it. I always enjoy our conversations and I'm looking forward to that manuscript coming out. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Take care.